thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Ed's away this week, thinking deep thoughts. I'm David Perry. During the first days of lockdown, there was a lot of utopian talk about clear skies, quiet streets and birdsong. It was obvious. The environmental problems of the planet had been solved in one fell COVID swoop. Well, no, actually. (laughs) Literally overnight might be making it sound a bit easier than it would be. And I fully agree that this is a societal problem and we have to address it as a society. And the question of how to make that come around, I think, is, is a really difficult one for our leaders. That was Hector Pollitt of Cambridge Econometrics, putting things mildly. He was talking on the Naked Scientists podcast. There's been a veritable tsunami of discussion and disputation along these lines, but I'm hopeful that we can rise above the harm of received ideas and cliches, because my guests this week are Dr Julian Happert, sometime Liberal Democrat MP for Cambridge, and now Fellow of Jesus College, and Dr Esther Miriam Wagner, Executive Director of the Wolf Institute and Fellow of St Edmunds College, Cambridge. Could I start by quoting the writer Jonathan Rutherford? The dominant creed of neoliberal economics has little to offer us in this moment of crisis. It has no transcendent certainties to navigate life by, no political economy to ensure a fair share for all, and no moral resources for helping us live together. I think that's quite a widely felt feeling um, when you talk to people. Does it uh, chime with you, Gillian? Yeah, I think there's a real question about how as a society we work out what values we have and what we're trying to achieve. I mean, I come at this very much from a, a Rawlsian perspective, that wonderful veil of ignorance, You know, the idea that if we could try and work out some rules not knowing who we would be, what rules would we want? If we didn't know our gender, would we want gender equality? If we didn't know our ethnicity, would we want equality? And if we didn't know whether we would be rich or poor, but knew that many more people were poor than were rich, how egalitarian would we like society to be economically? And so I think about things very much from that perspective. And I see almost nothing in neoliberal economics, as has been practiced recently, that fits in with that sort of value. Neoliberal economics is very good at saying that the people who have power, who have privilege, who have wealth, get to continue having that. And that's wonderful if you have the power. It's pretty rubbish if you don't have the power. So I think we do need to to have that course correction. We failed to do so in 2008. In many ways, it was a crisis that changed very little. 
maybe this will be the crisis that finally does bring about some of the changes that we need. Do you think we have the, as it were, the bandwidth, and speaking generally as a society, and perhaps I'm looking at this particular government as well, to come up with radical, new and profound ideas? I mean, we seem to be wigging it somewhat. I think it's very challenging to redo our entire dynamics. You know, there have been moments where things have changed. You could look at Lloyd George and some of the things that he introduced, the people's budget and the ideas that came from that. You could look at Attlee, Beveridge, Keynes, are sort of redefining that. It doesn't happen all that often. But there are ideas which have been around and are beginning to get more relevance and more credence. So universal basic income, for example, is an idea that was a freaky, strange, ridiculous suggestion a few decades ago. And it's gradually moved through the Overton window to become more and more sensible and is now something which places are starting to actually implement. There are ideas like that which have been around, which have been considered, which have been tested. And that's, I think, where we need to start looking. So UBI, for example, for me, is something which is right on the verge of being the right thing to do. Miriam, you're speaking to us from Germany today and you were raised in East Germany. I hesitate to ask if we could learn lessons from a defunct and authoritarian (laughs) state. It must give you a different perspective on these matters. I I know it does. Firstly, I think a lot of what a lot of East Germans have is actually this background noise in my mind that nothing is really stable. I think this is actually not sort of something learning from East Germany, but from the transition of East Germany to a capitalist system. The notion that nothing is stable actually is a very freeing notion because it sort of provides you with tools to deal with disruption. Because disruption is extremely useful, I think, for the individual. Crises push us to really, really question our way of life individually and also for society. As an East German, I have the advantage that I've been to an extreme change like this. And I I know that we can adapt to changes like that. But coming back to the economics, we have to redistribute wealth. That's obvious. Coming from a failed Marxist state, I'm quite worried about sort of possible models that have been put forward to replace capitalism. I mean, capitalism is not working, especially with the growth economy that we sort of attach to it. And especially the short termism of capitalism is a real problem because permeated from the economic sphere to all other spheres, to the political sphere, to the way design anything from social programs to education. So I think there's some really interesting things there. And I think Miriam's firstly completely right to say you can't just run the analysis which says there's a problem with what we have now. Therefore, anything else must be better. You know, it is very easy to envisage scenarios where we change to something that is even worse. You know, we know there are systems which have failed in the past and there are definitely some benefits uh, from a capitalist system. There's some creativity that has happened. There's absolutely been business innovation. But I think we do need to challenge what we have now. It's hard to believe that this is the best thing that we could be doing at the moment. And I think Miriam's completely right to talk about the short-termism. I and others have suggested some antidotes for this, that the government should have a commission for the future, where you set policy thinking about future technology changes, rather than constantly trying to regulate what happened five years ago. There's similarly ideas. Uh, Wales has a commissioner for future generations and a few countries are starting to do that to try to embed futures thinking more deeply into government. But I think there is this challenge of change because change, while occasionally countries go through radical change in a peaceful way, it's often been highly disruptive. Russia is is a wonderful example where some people just hang on to power no matter what change happens. So yes, we have to redistribute wealth, but more importantly, we have to redistribute power. 
so that there is much more equality of who has influence, who has control. Some of the things that we need to do have been around for ages. I'm a, a Liberal Democrat, and there is a song that we sing on the last night of the Lib Dem conference called The Land, which is about why we should have land value taxation as a way of redistributing wealth in the UK. Now, it's a song that was written in 1887 and is still sung and is still an active campaign. Maybe finally we can see some of these things that have been worked on by economists and political scientists for over a century actually happen. Going back to what you said, Miriam, it struck me that the way the consumer market model has sort of permeated almost everything is quite extraordinary. Before COVID, when people started to think about climate change, we invented this sort of rather bogus carbon credits market system, which was open to all sorts of abuse and gaining and so on. We've got Rishi Sunak's eat out scheme to boost the economy after COVID. Dishy Rishi's bumper meal deal, as the sun put it. So, I mean, can't we sort of broaden our way of trying to develop policy, as Julian said, and come at it from another angle? This is the short-termism I'm talking about. These are all little patches that are being applied to a system that needs systemic overhaul. But of course, we've lived very, very comfortable lives. And it's very, very difficult to leave comfortable lives behind. Once you've started eating nicer food and drinking nicer wine, it's almost impossible to go back to bad food and bad wine. We have to find a way to overcome this extreme link between capitalism and individualism. We have to understand that we as individuals have a responsibility towards not only our own society, but, you know, a worldwide society of humans to ensure that a way of life continues for everyone. Again, to break this extreme link between capitalism and individualism is something that I haven't seen much discussed lately. I mean, people always talk about now about the masks and how individual rights are being breached by all these uh, tests and masks and all these duties that are put upon us. But actually, very few people talk about how important it is for all of us to embrace a collective spirit, what it means to be part of the human race, I think. Do you think that's something you can bring to the discussion from your experience of East Germany in the sense that you're used to a more direct government input and people have have been very uh, suspicious of that in the West and perhaps are coming around to it in the light of this emergency? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, a lot of the nostalgia that people have about living in East Germany is exactly about this collective spirit. It's about this people really always trying to help each other out. These informal networks that formed in absence of a proper economic structure. I mean, in East Germany, if you didn't have a good network of friends, it was basically impossible for you to do anything because you couldn't just take out your money and pay someone to do things. So everyone who you wanted to hire, a plumber, who you wanted to have certain goods, you needed to have relationships to get this. So this economy created extremely tight networks between people that also brought about some sort of collective spirit. It's very difficult to create this now, a system lacking in everything where people have to help each other out in order to survive. We need to understand the importance of what it means to be part of a group. Move away from, you know, focusing on ourselves, on our own benefits, on our own advantages in life. Yeah, so I think there's a fascinating question about this. And I think where I disagree with possibly what Miriam's saying is that I don't think 
that sense of community has to be at war with a sense of individual's freedom. As a liberal, I think people can be quite free and act in community-minded ways. There's a sort of ultra-libertarian position which would say you should do anything that suits you and join in disagreeing strongly with that. We have the position now in Leicester where you can lose your job if you don't go to work. You can be fined for sitting in your sister's back garden talking to her but you'll be subsidised to go out for a meal at a pub. It's hard to understand why that is a sensible strategy to adopt. So I'm actually a great believer that if you can be honest and build trust and get people to understand why things are useful, you will do better. You won't get complete compliance with community-spirited behaviour, but let's remember that in East Germany, you know, the Stasi had several percent of the entire adult population working for them to try to get there, and even then people found ways around. But you can get very large behaviour if you get people to understand why that is. And I, so I don't think there's a tension between individualism and liberalism and community minded. There is between libertarianism and community. You cited some cases where radical new thought had worked politically. What do you put that down to? Is, is that individual very gifted politicians or did it come out of a different sort of crisis? It doesn't seem to be emerging right now, as far as I can see. So I think there's a scale of crisis which precipitates major change. You know, the classic example is the post-Second World War reforms. The Beveridge Report was written at a time where everything was going to have to change. The Second World War completely transformed the United Kingdom. It transformed the concept of empire, the concept of global leadership. It saw the US take dominance. Huge changes came from that. So time was ripe to say, what is the new thing? What can we do? So Beveridge came up with his report, Attlee implemented it, and we still see the ramifications then. Some of the Lloyd George pieces happened, some before and some during the First World War. Again, a huge change, a really gut-wrenching change. And in some ways, I'm not sure the crises that we see now are as big. While it feels hugely traumatic in the UK at the moment... Actually, for many people, yes, you know, I don't want to downplay. There have been people who've had awful experiences, lost their jobs, been seriously ill, died, difficulties with all sorts of things. But it hasn't been a trauma quite on the scale of a world war. And I think what would be interesting in some ways is to look at countries which have had those sorts of traumas. There are countries who've had massive civil wars, huge crises, and that's when you can transform and rebuild. I think what we haven't really learned all that well is how to have that productive reformation of ideas, reformation of country, without going through an awful trauma, which I wouldn't wish on anybody. Because the argument for the status quo is always going to be strong. The people who have power, influence, control under this system, whatever system it is, will always want to hang on to that system and won't want to see the radical change that might jeopardise their power. You know, we saw, you know, revolutions in 1848 fail for that sort of reason. Most revolutions through history have failed to get there. And the people who had power have come back into power, have come on to power and resisted that change. So I don't think it's easy. I think there's also a timeliness problem. There's a wonderful cartoon that always sticks in my mind where you have the wave of the pandemic coming over people. And then behind that, there's a big wave of climate change coming. And actually behind that, there's biosystem collapse, which frankly, is possibly the worst bit of that if we start massively losing food sources. And I'm not sure people quite realise that. Then an issue about whether we have the time to fix things like the capitalist system, or whether we have to get on and tackle climate change and various other things quickly, because we just don't have the time that a revolution would take. 
You're listening to Naked Reflections, this week with me, David Perry, and my guests are Julian Huppert and Esther Miriam Wagner, and we're discussing a post-COVID settlement. Here's Hector Pollitt again with some suggestions. The sorts of policies that we're talking about here, there's nothing particularly new. Wind and solar power, support for energy efficiency, car scrappage scheme, which we tried after 2008, 2009, but this time around to promote the use of electric vehicles. And some very simple things like uh, planting trees that can create local employment. There are lots of potential benefits here if we, if we can get the message to the politicians. Lots of people have made, you just did, Julian, made, made the connection with the upcoming climate crisis and the COVID crisis. Miriam, do you see them as being connected or predictive in some way? I'm sure they are somehow connected. But what really struck me in the last months was how, how many people, despite all the hardship that the, the crisis brought for them, or sort of, the, sort of the, this, this new life, at the same time, quite a few people I talked to actually thought that the crisis had been made just for them because they really needed a break. We've seen this crescendo in our societies, this extreme breathlessness with which we move through life. I hope in a way that maybe this is going to slow us down a little bit. And by slowing down, it also slows down the way we consume, the way we travel and again, that relates, of course, to climate. I mean, we produce uh, carbon dioxide crazy amounts on a daily basis. I think this is a real chance. We, we have a real chance right now to properly rethink our way of life. We're not used in our societies to being at the mercy of a sort of invisible virus that we can't control. And it's quite a strange experience for us. But do you think it helps us feel more empathetic and more mindful of the global south, for want of a better phrase. Julian? I wish I could say yes. Um, I don't see any signs of it, sadly. And I think partly because it, it is a very different experience. You know, here we have very much more first world problems. And they are, you know, again, they are really serious for some people. And again, there's power, there's financial gradients, which affect people's experience. So while Miriam's absolutely right, that for some people, this has felt like a wonderful freedom. I know one academic who said, all I wanted to do in the next few months was to read and not leave my library. It's great. <laughs> but there, and there are other people whom it's been tough. But I don't think it feels like many developing countries where the struggle for food, the struggle for existence is much more pressing. I mean, one could make a comment about some of the emergency food and the people who have who've been desperately needing universal credit and unable to get it. But I don't think we're seeing that sense of engagement because it, it is so different. We are still able, for the large part, to live in safe, stable accommodation, where food can be provided, where water still exists, where there's very low risk of violence. So I don't think we're going to see, sadly, that sort of more globalist perspective. And if you wanted some evidence of that, you know, it's during this period that the government has announced the closure of the Department for International Development and a reduction of, I think, was it £2.9 billion a year in the amount of money that we're going to give to international aid. And I've certainly seen the argument presented increasingly that says, we need the help here, not in the rest of the world. And while, yes, absolutely, there's more we could do here in the UK, the idea that people here are struggling as much as people in the poorest parts of the world is, is simply untrue. The conditions there are so much worse, I think, than people realise. So I'd love this to be the crisis that which leads to true globalism, uh, but I don't think we're seeing it. Do you agree with that, Miriam, or are you more optimistic? I think a lot of people 
have been sort of ripped out from this very, very stable life. And I think maybe, I mean, I hope that this has actually increased the way people can empathize about other people's situation. In the West, we've had this complete delusion that life is safe, right? I mean, there's always someone to help you uh, if you need to go to hospital. For, especially in Italy, we've seen this extreme disruption. People saying, oh, you know, if you're over 60, you cannot actually go to a hospital anymore. They will not admit you. With this shattering of this delusion of safety, I hope that people can relate more to what it feels like to live in a global south, to not be able to to know what next month brings for you. Hubris, I suppose, uh, being corrective there. One idea that's gained traction, it seems to me, is that the structures of government seem to be very creaky, there's not joined up thinking, seem to be very slow sometimes and very panicky. Do you think Dominic Cummings could have a point about reorganising uh, civil service and governance? Julian? There's something I always love because it comes that soft, which is the politician syllogism. And it's a lovely logical argument. We must do something. This is something. Therefore, we must do this. And although obviously it doesn't hang together logically, it is often used. And so, yes, government does not function as well as it could do. Absolutely. That doesn't mean that the coming style approach is going to make it work any better. And in fact, in many cases, worse. I'm deeply cynical about Cummings, his motivations and his actions. And I think one of the things which he wants to see is complete freedom for the executive to do whatever it wants to without regard for legal controls, without regard for parliament, without regard for anything else. And that really, really worries me. And I think a lot of his agenda is actually about passing blame onto other people. You know, we've seen this whole narrative about we're just following the science. Now, A, I think they haven't just followed what the science says. But secondly, science can tell you some things, but it cannot tell you the correct answer. Science can make predictions about the consequences of actions. It can say, if you're really lucky, it might be accurate enough to say, this is the number of COVID deaths under this scenario, and this is the economic cost. That's a COVID death under that scenario and the economic cost. And it probably won't do that very accurately. But it can't say what the trade-off is between those. There's no calculation which says this much increased risk is worth this much extra money. That's a, that's a political decision and can only ever be a political decision. Can we improve government? Definitely. Can we bring in more understanding of data, of evidence? Absolutely. This is not the way to do it. Are you a Dominic Cummings fan, uh, Miriam? <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> I mean, I have sympathy for some of the frustrations. I mean, we all share frustrations about, about bureaucracy. As an academic, in the olden days, you know, sort of the glorious 70s and 80s, your, your tasks were teaching and sort of research, learning. But of course, now it's, it's mostly bureaucracy. So when he brings with him the promise of using bureaucracy, that it's, a, it's a great promise. But on the other hand, of course, you see that this is just really aimed at particular places. I mean, if you saw this shenanigans in the Intelligence and Security uh, Committee, it's not really about putting competent people in place, right? It's again about putting certain stooges in that will do your bidding. I mean, it's an alluring prospect to get rid of parts of the bureaucracy. But on the other hand, the way it's being implemented is a bit hypocritical, really. And then on the other hand, I mean, as a historian, you also know that there is something about bureaucracy that, that brings with it stability of empires, so, if, you know, I, I work on the Fatimids, sort of the dynasty that that ruled Egypt and North Africa and parts of, of Asia in the 10th to 12th century. And 
you actually see that when you have a functioning bureaucratic state where everything is triple stemmed and when everything phrases exist to regulate life, you actually know that you have a stable society that ensures that minorities are being protected, that ensures that trade functions. So you know, as much as we all hate filling out forms, there is something about bureaucracy that keeps states really, really stable. As someone once said to me, what's wrong with box ticking? I wanted to ask both of you if you suffer, as I do, from crippling nostalgia and regret when you think about how things have changed in daily life and social intercourse and so on. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are some things which are great, but I miss just being able to see more people directly, to discover that they're three-dimensional, to hug friends and, and you know, children. Is that, that physical sense of interaction, you know, it's still a treat when I occasionally see people remember that they have a third dimension. I'm delighted to be able to do some meetings and all sorts of things without having to travel, but I'm fed up with staring at Zoom screens and that constant glow. Yeah, there's lots of things about the way things were that I, I would love to get back to. There are some things I hope we won't go back to. Uh, Miriam was talking earlier about travelling all the time and academics seem to live on planes in many cases. There's a lot of things that we can replace with really good electronic virtual alternatives. But just seeing people is lovely. Talking about the nostalgia, I, I hadn't appreciated how much I've missed the physical presence of people. I mean, we talk on Zoom and we see each other and we hear each other, but there's something metaphysical about being in the room with someone. It's, it's really irreplaceable. And I've, I've really missed dinners in college and lunches in college and being able to talk about all sorts of interesting things with interesting people. I mean, I found myself sort of wandering the streets and chatting up strangers because I just needed human interaction. Radio 3 have been playing old proms because there's no live music this year. And the other night I heard Daniel Barenboim conducting Die Valkyra from 2013 in a packed Albert Hall on a hot night. And I thought this was something really extraordinary. So there we are. Well, we, we've run out of time. I don't know if we've reached a consensus, but perhaps I could end with a rather gnomic quote from John Ruskin, who thought a lot about what human enrichment really was. And he said, there's no wealth but life itself. Thanks to my guests, Julian Huppert and Esther Miriam Wagner, and thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments or reflections of your own, you can email nakedreflections at wolf.com. .ac.uk. Let us know what subject you'd like to hear more about and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd like to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. Do join us next time when Ed will be back. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.